Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, January 11th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Mercedes shares details of her interview with former Nova Scotia Premier Ian Rankin and what she learned about the reasoning behind his resignation. We also hear the latest on the move to online learning for Ontario students due to large numbers of COVID-19 cases in the province and why many aren't happy with the decision. Next up, according to a recent poll, 33% of Albertans went over budget on their holiday spending. We get some tips on how to dig yourself out of that Christmas debt with Jeremy Clark, president of Calgary-based CH Financial. The legacy of former U.S. President Donald Trump has not only left a mark on America, but also here in Canada. We speak with a professor of psychological science training on why some Canadians are drawn to U.S. politicians and what value they get by aligning themselves with leaders from another country. And finally, January 11th marks National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. We speak with musician Paul Brandt, who's also the founder of Not In My City. It's an organization that shines the spotlight on the issue right here in Calgary. Paul shares with us why he's so passionate about the topic and what resources are available in Alberta to educate people on human trafficking. On the latest episode of The West Block, host Mercedes Stevenson had the chance to sit down with former Nova Scotia Premier Ian Rankin following his resignation last week. Mercedes joins us this morning to discuss the details from that conversation. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. So let's uh, kick it off with the reason behind the Premier's resignation. Uh, What was given? Well, he basically lost the election, which I think personally was a big one. And a lot of folks were surprised by that. They thought the Liberals would win. He was kind of missing off the election trail. Um, He stayed on as Liberal leader, but he's clearly made a decision not to do that anymore. And he sort of told me he didn't really have any regrets, which I thought was interesting. Um, And he says this is all about family reasons. Uh, he and his partner do have a young child that was that was recently born, and of course, uh, we all know it is true that politics takes a ton of time mm. away from family. Um, and I can't imagine it was an easy thing to lose that election, and no doubt face the anger and wrath inside the Liberal Party afterwards. He had uh, been the premier, but he'd been the premier because he took over from somebody who was retiring, and that meant that he didn't have to go through an election to be chosen. Uh, and then, of course, when he faced the electorate, he faced a lot of wrath. Um, so he's saying, you know, in the interview with us, this is about a decision to move on with his life, be with his family. I have no doubt that's true. Uh, I also have no doubt that it very likely had something to do with the way that the election played out as well. Mm-hmm. So what kind of a legacy does he leave behind then, Mercedes? Well, you know, it's interesting. He wasn't in power for that long. Um, but what time he was in power was a very challenging time. And that, of course, was a lot of the COVID-19 stuff. And it wasn't just him. Um, the premier ahead of him obviously had dealt quite a bit with COVID-19 too. But that was sort of the thing that defined his time as premier, as it has defined the time of so many premiers across this country. Um, something that they never anticipated, but it becomes the biggest and most important thing that they are dealing with 24-7. Um, and so he... He said that that was certainly something that would stand out to him um, as something that he had to deal with in terms of challenges, that he was satisfied that he believed uh, the province had done as much as they could. Nova Scotia, as you remember, basically shut down and, and locked people out and they had 
very low COVID rates because of that. Um, so he was relatively satisfied with that. Uh, of course, in Nova Scotia, um, the other thing we should point out, since we're talking to an Alberta audience, and I didn't realize this when I lived in Alberta, but Nova Scotia has huge, huge healthcare problems. Um, there are, you know, forecasts on the radio in other provinces about um, where you're going for school that day, what roads are closed, the weather. In Nova Scotia, they have forecasts about what hospitals have doctors um, and where you can go where there's an anesthesiologist if you're in labor and having a baby. So if they'd been hit hard with COVID, it would have been really, really devastating. So they managed to kind of control for that, um, but it doesn't change some of the deeper healthcare problems that that province has. Mm. From one premier to another, uh, Premier Doug Ford, you covered the, well, a week in now to the latest restrictions in Ontario, and you really dug into the fact that the schools are closed and the impact that is having on uh, Ontarians. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really, really tough for not just people with kids, but for people who have kids who work for them or care about people who have kids, and of course for the kids themselves. And and there's a really rising anger in Ontario that schools are still being closed. People see it as um, issues that should have been dealt with. They have different answers for what they think could have happened to prevent that. For example, um, better masking for teachers, better ventilation system in schools, um, the expansion of the healthcare system to be able to deal with and accommodate more of an influx from COVID. Others say, look, um, children are very adorable. They are also little germ vectors. And it's not about the kids getting it, but it's about the parents, the grandparents that they can pass that on to. So we had to shut this down. But Vera Etchens, who is um, our our top doctor here in Ottawa, um, was growing increasingly critical of the school closings because there's very real impacts on the socialization of children, on their learning, um, and for parents who are at home. You know, I've got friends who have kids that are in kindergarten. How do you do online schooling for kindergarten? It's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to do your job if you have a five-year-old sitting next to you. Um, And we had Shannon Crownfoot on to talk about that. She's the McLean's Magazine Bureau Chief, and she was talking about that. She's a four-year-old. Four-year-old can't navigate Zoom conference call on own. Um, So that means you're constantly having to put your work aside, and parents are yet again the ones who really have to bear the burden of this, um, and that's parents who can afford to. If you're in a frontline exactly. job, um, or if you're somebody who is working, for example, in a grocery store, the chances that you're making enough money to be able to bring in childcare um, unlikely. So either you miss your job or you hope you have family. Uh, but this is having a very real and unseen impact, was one of her points, on low-income workers in the economy who are the least likely to be able to take time off of work or have an employer who says, okay, you can do your job from home. Those tend to be jobs uh, like yours or mine where there's a way around it. Um, if you are somebody who's working at a gas station or a trucker, like, you literally can't do your job from home. And so that's putting those parents into really difficult situations. Yeah, I mean, and pushback in Ontario as well as in Quebec. In those two provinces, I was just hearing that, you know, some of the toughest restrictions anywhere. Yeah, really tough restrictions. We've gone um, right back. Uh, the schools are closed. There's no indoor dining here at all. You you can take takeout from a restaurant, but you can't sit down. Um, there are still, and this is what upsets people, other things that are open, like shopping malls. And so people go, okay, well, why can't I go to a restaurant, but I can go to a mall? My kid can't go to school, but I can go shopping. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. You're hearing a lot of um, anger being directed at the provincial government. Their concern, um, which is understandable, is that the Omicron rates here are 
through the roof and the hospitalizations are increasing very rapidly. But there's an increasing sense from people, you cannot get a PCR test in Ontario. It's really, really hard. Um, and the healthcare system being overwhelmed. And people are looking at this and sort of going, okay, um, so it's January of 2022. This thing's been around since March 2020. Everyone got it the first or second round. But now there's kind of a sense of, why haven't we figured out other alternatives, you know, almost two full years into this? You know, one of the things that was floated at the beginning of the pandemic was, you know, perhaps we should have mandatory vaccinations. And that was floated you know, in the Ethernet. We, we saw it online, maybe some conspiracy theorists. Uh, but it meant a lot more when we heard it from the federal health minister. Could this come to fruition, uh, Mercedes, mandatory vaccinations? Because it kind of went over like a lead balloon here in Alberta. Yeah, so... The federal government can't make you do that. Um, they don't have the power. It would fall under health care. Those would be provincial mandates. Both, uh, I believe, Ontario and Alberta have already said there's no way they're going to do it. Um, speaking to a few people on Parliament Hill, it wasn't a trial balloon. It was kind of the minister apparently just speaking off the cuff um, and probably not. Uh, a super smart thing for him to say when they are trying to get people to be vaccinated because the surest way to turn people off of that is to start to suggest that it's going to in some way be mandatory or enforced by the government uh, because of the implications that that carries. But just to be clear for all your listeners, um, the federal government does not have the power to make you get vaccinated. The only power the federal government has when it comes to vaccines would be if you're coming into Canada, they can mandate what vaccines you have to have. That still wouldn't apply to Canadian citizens, though, because you have a constitutional right to return to your country. You can't be stopped. You can be forced to be tested. You can be forced to quarantine. You cannot be forced to take a vaccine, though. Thank you for breaking that down and always a great chat. Thanks for uh, for joining us. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mercedes. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. And a new poll shows 33% of Albertans went over budget on their holiday spending. Oh, are you one of them? Jeremy Clark, president of CH Financial, joins us this morning with some advice on how to create a financial plan and get, a, get things under control as we move into this 2022 year. He joins us now. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Sue. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. So a little bit more on this polling. How much credit card debt did we all accumulate through the holidays? Well, it looks like uh, the average the average Canadian put on an additional $800 or so on their credit cards during the holidays. So, you know, if you look at the average uh, Canadian's holiday budget, which is somewhere around twelve to $1,500, you can say that roughly half of that spending um, was then put on credit cards, which usually means it's going to be on those those cards for a while. Could it be, uh, Jeremy, with uh, you know, taking a phrase from the Star Wars universe, a bit of the phantom menace in that uh, <laughs> Christmas was a few weeks ago, but now we look at these statements and now we realize the money we spent because we do things on credit, for example, that we don't realize? Yeah, exactly. And I always love a good Star Wars analogy, Andy, <laughs> yeah. for any financial topic, as you, as you know. Um, but I think just in this era of such low interest rates, and especially for people under the age of 40 or even even 45 like myself, we pretty much have known in our adult lives nothing but low interest rates. And it can become kind of seductive to say, well, you know, if I'm just paying small amount of interest, then what's the harm in, in putting additional amounts on credit cards or lines of credit or what have you? But those do build up over time. And at some point, the debt does have to be paid. And we are hearing, Jeremy, that those interest rates may start to climb up pretty soon. So it is something we need to be aware of. And the fact that Canadians have some of the highest levels of personal debt in the world is maybe those interest rates, the low interest rates are are responsible for that, I would assume. Yeah. 
I think that's true. As, along with the stability of our banking sector, I think a lot of us Canadians sort of take for granted that we have a very stable banking sector, which is multiple levels, not just the big banks, but the credit unions as well, lots of independent lenders. Um, um, Money Mart these days is, is pretty is pretty good with their ads as well. So there's lots of ways for people to get access to credit. And again, you can pile one on top of the other on top of the other, and, and it can really feel like this is this mountain that you can't ever, ever climb out of. I understand the first step is addressing the fact that, that you have debt. So I guess it's the acknowledgement and maybe getting all the players of the game, meaning all those debts lined up and put in front of you. Would that be a good start point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just to look at where you're actually owing money, where and who you're owing money to and, and how much is that and um, having a plan for how to pay it off. There's lots of interesting um, apps out there, credit counseling services, most uh, bank or credit union websites, other apps do have good budgeting tools there as well. So it's putting everything on a list and, and so you can at least quantify it and then developing a plan as to how to pay those off. And of course, the higher interest ones should be paid off first. Yeah, and it's easy to you know, bury your head in the sand and, and not look at those numbers if you don't have them anywhere. So really to put that down on paper and be able to see it, it really is important in, in really sort of taking that first step forward. And and in OCH Financial, you, you guys, you have a team of financial experts. You'll sit down with people, for example, and, and sort of build that plan, right? Exactly. So, and we have we have clients of all sorts of different income levels, and I can tell you that someone's financial health doesn't have anything to do really with how much they earn. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of higher earning clients who are slowly and steadily going into bankruptcy, and I've also seen the opposite of that. So, I think the heartening thing for people is that, um, regardless of your income, there is a path forward to improve your financial health. And talking about it with a professional, although you. Folks and, and the people in your line of work aren't therapists. It can be quite <laughs> therapeutic for people who think that there's, you know, they're, they're into a corner and there's no solution. Yeah, you know, Andy, it's interesting. Uh, my, my background is actually not in, uh, in finance. It's in science. And part of that was psychology. And I can tell you that I use that psychology degree every day in, uh, in my job. And um, we, we try to be as empathetic as possible. We're not here to judge people. We've seen pretty much almost anything you can think of financially. So our, our role is not to judge or to criticize, but to really try to educate and empower people. The help is there. People just need to reach out. We'll give uh, folks your website, chfinancial.ca. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jeremy Clark, president of CH Financial. What value do American politics have for Canadians, and why do we repeat the rhetoric of our southern neighbours? Joining us to help explore the influence of American politics here in Canada is Dr. Becky Choma, Associate Professor and Director of Psychological Science Training at Ryerson University. Good morning to you, Dr. Choma. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Well, you know, we did see a lot of Canadians supporting President Donald Trump during his term, and he still has support here in Canada. So why does he garner this support among Canadians? What is the value to a Canadian to, you know, support and uh, follow and uh, basically almost campaign for an American president? Yeah, I think there's a, a multitude of reasons why some Canadians are drawn to Trump. Um, and actively sort of support and share the support of Trump very vocally um, and visually. I think Trump embodies a lot of the beliefs and attitudes and feelings that some Canadians have, and they don't necessarily have a counterpart um, on this side of the border. 
So <laughs> Trump is a very vocal figure. And he dominates media. He did when he was president. He still does. So people are drawn to that. He is brash. He speaks his mind. And a lot of his supporters, um, that really resonates with them. It, it's funny, Doctor, because, you know, it's, it's almost like people are personally invested in this human being that is Donald Trump. It's, it's like they get super defensive of anything you say, even if you mention his name and don't say anything bad. People jump all over you. What, what's behind that kind of response from people? Yeah, he's a, a highly polarizing figure. So I think in American politics, um, to a lesser extent, Canadian politics are highly polarized. So, you know, you have these two political parties to choose from in the U.S. And there's, you know, the, people don't necessarily generally feel that way. They, they might identify that way, but our, our actual beliefs kind of fall on this continuum. So you're either with Trump or you're, or you're against Trump. And I think because he captures, you know, sort of like the real intimate feelings that people experience, I think this is why they can get defensive. So his supporters on the Canadian side and um in particular, tend to be under 50. They tend to be working class. They're more likely to be men than women. Um, they tend to be less educated, and they tend to live in more rural environments. And supporters tend to kind of congregate in the prairies compared to other areas in Canada. This group of the population, um, you know, I think arguably feels threatened. You know, their way of life is changing. The world is moving in a particular way. They feel forgotten. Um, they feel that you know, the world and Canada and probably the U.S. cares more about immigrants and women and visible minorities and other marginalized groups than they do about them. Trump is really big about oil. Um, and if you live in the prairies and you fall into those demographics, there's a greater chance that your livelihood and your ability to sustain yourself and live is probably connected to some of these industries. So, when when you bring this up and uh, that topic is highly charged and very intimate and personal and emotional for people. Dr. Choma, I'm wondering, has there always been a connection between uh, some Canadian people and an American leader or like a Donald Trump in the past, like I'm talking in the past even 25, yeah. 50 years, or has this been highlighted because of social media and just the, you know, the, this day and age and so much going on? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I think that Canadians and the rest of the world have always been a little enamored and interested in American politics. So for the better part of um, you know the 20th century, the U.S. has kind of dominated in the world. And the rest of the world, obviously, we always pay attention to the quote-unquote superpower because they're the ones that might be leading the charge. They might have the biggest impact on us. So we've all sort of watched American politics. Um, so I think that that kind of component is not necessarily new. The U.S. system is also a little bit different. Like it's, 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 it's sort of it's much more animated um, than other parts in the world, and it's it's televised. And now it's like you said, it's on social media. So I think part of this is sort of a culmination of a bunch of different factors. There's all of these big things happening in the world. You know, we're talking about climate change now. We have a pandemic. We have very different ideas that have been polarized in many parts of the world of how we're supposed to live. And this is accessible to us all the time. You know, every time you have your phone or you turn on a computer or you turn on a TV, all of these things are there. We can't escape any of these discussions. And I think that it leads to this. So before you might read the newspaper and go on with your day, but you can't do that anymore. It's, it's in your face. And if you want to find more information and watch these kinds of things, and you can 
You can go to YouTube or you can go to Twitter or Facebook. Mm-hmm. So I think part of this is sort of fueled by this like 24 seven news cycle um, that's sort of been with us for the better part of, you know, 30 years now. Yeah. And whether that information is true or not, right. Uh, almost irrelevant. So we saw the rise of the people's party in the last federal election here in Canada. Do you think this is kind of feeding into the political beliefs that have been seeping across the border from the U S into Canada? Yeah, I think that what that, what that party is trying to do is it picking up of a, a smaller group of Canadians that share some of these beliefs. And I think that that group of people feels alienated. I think that they feel that they do not hold the same beliefs or ideas or concerns that the rest of the population does. Um, And it's picking up on that. And they didn't get any seats. But I think that we should be aware that this is is a group that, that feels threatened. And they feel under threat. And they don't feel heard. Um, And I think that's some of the draw to someone like Trump, because they see that he has support in the U.S. So, you know, there's a sense of um, community and and support and validation when you when you support someone like that and belong to those communities, even though it doesn't really have any bearing on your political life or your livelihood here in Canada. Um, Well, I mean, it can if he's, he's, you know, there's implications if he's president, but not in the same extent if you're an American citizen living in the U.S. Very interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you for shedding some light, and thanks for your time, Dr. Choma. Thank you so much for having me. That is Dr. Becky Choma, Associate Professor and Director of Psychological Science Training at Ryerson University. Thank you. Appreciate your That's something we've wanted to talk about for quite some time, in the the sense, Sue, that we were wondering, during the the Trump era, boy, we had a lot of people, whenever we talk about Trump, and, you know, we... This is conversation. This is the editorializing uh, opportunity or editorial yeah, opportunity. just like having a discussion have, yeah. about it, not whether anything's right, wrong, yeah. or in between. And people would get yeah. very passionate. And my issue is, yeah, it, we, we're tied to the U.S. to a large extent, but it's not our, it's not our game. Mm-mm. It's not our, our family. This is different. We don't have any skin in that game. But as people it were. are so passionate, so I'm glad we had a chance to. And Peter just sent in a text, and he's right on the money. People who like Donald Trump do so because he says what they want to hear. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. very, very true. We like to align ourselves with people with similar, uh, you know, opinions and that validate what we, th- what our views are perhaps in the world. Yep. And it's, it's different and it's extreme. And, uh, you know, if you don't have an extreme choice, you, you maybe cross the border for that. What steps can we take to put an end to human trafficking and protect vulnerable people from being victimized? Joining us on this National Human Trafficking Awareness Day is Paul Brandt, musician and founder of the organization Not In My City. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's great to be chatting with you today. Always a pleasure to talk. Uh, To begin with, tell us about Not In My City and, and how a country music star felt compelled to get involved with the problem of human trafficking. Yeah, we were exposed to the issue of human trafficking uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, internationally, uh, we were on a trip, my wife and I, and, and uh, had the uh, had the opportunity and life changing moment to to meet some human trafficking victims and survivors, and it just really opened our eyes. We had no idea, as many Canadians don't, that this is now one of the largest, fastest growing crimes in the world today. So we started uh, Not In My City about four years ago now to raise awareness and create a platform for you know collective action for the community and just to kind of get everyone involved and get them learning and, and, and help them to, to be working together on this issue. You know, uh, Paul, whenever you launch an organization or a company for that matter, the naming it can be super important, and I think this name fits incredibly well called Not In My City because I think that so many Canadians, no matter what city you're from or community, think that it's not 
in my city, mm-hmm. this issue. It's that double entendre play yeah. on words, the songwriter background, I guess, comes <laughs> in handy. But, I, you know, we, uh, we were working with the branding and marketing students uh, right here in Calgary at Mount Royal University. And uh, we're talking about the issue of trafficking and trying to brainstorm the name. And this one popped up and, and it really seemed to make sense. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening with your organization today, this being National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. I understand you've got a, a collaboration with the Calgary Catholic School District starting yeah, today. Yeah, so it's a huge day for us. You know, um, you know January 11th is, is the National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, kind of the more recognized internationally. Um, we have a, a Human Trafficking Awareness Day here in Alberta and a number of provinces across the country coming up in February as well on the 22nd. But today, we're so excited to be announcing this new partnership with the Calgary Catholic School school district. Uh, they're the largest school district in Alberta with over 56,000 students and 117 schools in Calgary, Airdrie, Cochrane, Chestermere, and Rocky View. And uh, we've partnered with them. Uh, their director of learning has championed, uh, Leanne, Leanne Timko, she's championed this development um, of the education-specific learning module to give teachers and support staff the tools that they need to identify risk factors that could lead to a youth being trafficked. And, you know, this is, this is a, a big part of the battle is just, you know, being aware, knowing what to look for, what are the signs. And, and we also have training programs that, um, you know, you could go and do today, 25 minutes. If you got 25 minutes, you can go to our free online learning course and, and, uh, and learn more about what you can do about trafficking. The other thing I found very interesting, Paul, is your organization offering e-learning to sectors such as aviation and motor transport. Why is it important to target those two industries? Yeah, well, you know, um, we've um, you know really benefited from the Canadian uh, uh, National uh, uh, Human Trafficking uh, Center, you know, the, and and their research that they've done on a report called the Corridors Report. Um, so the Center to End Human Trafficking put out a report um, just this past year that really showed where traffickers are moving trafficking victims and we you know can predict this and one of the places where trafficking uh, victims are moved most frequently uh, you know obviously uh, are, are airports and uh, and also you know uh, um, the trucking industry transportation industry you know they can be ears and eyes you know right on the ground uh, helping us to see um, how trafficking survivors and victims are being moved um, on uh, on the highways as well um, and so we've we felt that you know educating these partners and working together with them to come up with you know just better ways to be responsive would work really well and and uh, it's been a very successful program that way Paul we talked about it right off the top that this is a problem despite what people might think here in Calgary in Alberta across Canada so how do we become allies in the fight against human trafficking in our country what's the best way to do it you know you're not in my city .ca website is, is a place to start. Is there more? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's an awkward conversation, and I think it requires a bit of courage. You know, it requires that you educate yourself, take that 25 minutes and learn, uh, you know, what you can on that e-learning program, but then be willing to chat about it. You know, 21% of trafficking victims in Canada are under the age of 18 years old. Um, you know, I think about this even in relation to our, you know, to the indigenous population in Canada. They make up 4% of the country, and, and it's estimated that 50% of trafficking victims are indigenous. You know, these are... These are things that most people don't know about. And it's not exactly like, you know, your, your favorite, uh, you know, opener, um, you know, getting together with people. But it definitely is something that can save lives. And if we're brave enough to have these conversations, we can make a huge difference in our community. Today is one day out of 365, but in the meantime, it's something we should be vigilant uh, on all year. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You too.
is Paul Brad, musician and founder of Not In My City. Online, notinmycity.ca, and links including to the 25-minute video that Paul had mentioned to, to learn to explore the topic as so many of us don't know much about human trafficking. It's shocking that it really is an issue for us here in the city of Calgary yeah. and beyond. It really, it's eye-opening, isn't it? It is, and this is one day if it gets you started in the conversation, mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.